0: Living together. 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, verses 12 through 22. Over the last uh, two weeks or so, we've looked at a number of passages that deal with um, lots of theological truth. So we started in chapter 4, and we looked at verses 13 through, I believe it's 18, the end of the chapter, and he ends by telling us hey, listen. The people who have died are not just dead and forgotten and to be left by themselves and have no hope of the promises that God has made. There is a resurrection that is coming, and Christ will raise them from the dead prior to you being caught up together with God in heaven. So, do something. And what he tells us to do at the end of that passage is to encourage or to comfort one another with these words. So he's telling us that the theology that he's giving us is to be used by each one of us. Thessalonians is not a book like 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, that is written to pastors on how pastors are to engage with their people. Rather, 1 Thessalonians is written to the church, telling the church how they are to function together, how they are to live together. We then look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. He tells us of the day of the Lord... And how there is a coming a day of wrath, and how you will be spared from that, because you have not been appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells us in verse eleven, considering that fact, once again, you and I are to comfort each other and edify or build up one another just as you are doing. This is the responsibility of the church. But as we've gone through those passages, he's given us a lot of theology, but he hasn't tol- t- told us a lot of the practical how-tos that's involved in those passages, right? If I just tell you, comfort one another with these words. Um, well, how do I How do I prepare to do that? How do I ensure that I'm doing that effectively? How do I ensure that I continue on that path? You know, there's lots of... Aspects to comfort one another Edify one another That seem to be hanging Just kind of unanswered, right? And I I think That 1 Thessalonians Chapter 5 verses 12-22 It's just a series of like Command, command, command Command And, And why does he give us all these? I think as we implement These final commands It enables us To adequately and effectively encourage and edify comfort one another within the body of Christ. And so he's going to give us four different areas of our lives that we're supposed to look at, examine. And as we work on those areas of our life, I think doing that will allow us to be equipped to effectively minister the truth of God's word, the theology that he's described. And, you know, to be completely honest, all the theology all the truth that's within scripture to one another. And so 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 12 through 22 I think is kind of the practical handbook on the previous two statements to comfort two times and then to edify one another. Alright, having said all that, let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 12 through 22 and then we will seek to um, explain some of the more nuanced aspects verse 12. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. But, Always pursue what is good, both for yourself and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything. Give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Father, we do thank you for The instruction that you provide us on how we are to live together with one another so that our relationships are strong, our love for one another is immense, our desire for peace is great, and most importantly, that we would be learning from you and that we would be applying that in our own personal lives so that the the abundance of our own knowledge and our own growth in you would be able to overflow and to spill into and and drastically help the fellow believers who are gathering together with us and who have come into covenant with us. We pray that you would help us to learn and seek to apply these truths in our day-to-day lives. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so he begins and, um, you know, anytime you come across like the passages, the talk and you're the pastor and you're preaching to people about, you know, how they're supposed to uh, respond to you, it's kind of awkward. But um, really, I I think Paul actually starts off and uh, um, his, his way of asking them in verse 12 to do what he's doing there, and then how he continues on, his language becomes more forceful. So it's like in this first section where he calls upon them, uh, sorry, the theme we must intentionally work together for our mutual growth in Christ. So intentionality uh, working together, mutual growth in Christ. Uh, Big idea number one, verses 12 through 14 is, or 12 through 13 is to love your leaders, is how I've kind of summarized that idea. But what he does though is, he starts off here, and the literal translation of verse 12 is this, and we ask you and then as he works forward, the commands are not really completely commands. Like they're they're structured in such a way that the tone is softer than you know how you would address a child who you know you don't want to touch that stove. Like you very strongly look at the child and go, "Don't touch that." Or you know, "Eat your food." You know, that's a positive command. They don't view it as positive, but it's a positive command. Um, and what he's doing here is he's, he's telling them to do something, but he doesn't come out and he uses words that are as strong. I think there's implications probably that there is love there, that he's assuming there's love there, that there's care there, that this is already occurring and he's simply encouraging them to continue to pursue this in their lives. And so he begins and he tells them to love their leaders in verse 12, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Okay? And so, respect the leaders God provides. But then the, why, why do they do that? It's because of the work that is accomplished. Okay, And he uses numerous terms, numerous words here to refer to them and their work look at verse 12 who labor okay that's a working idea it's hard work and admonish you another word used to refer to what they are doing they are instructing they're encouraging sometimes rebuking okay and they do it you you, uh, esteem them highly for their love in, in love for their work's sake. Okay, So there's this work that a pastor or a leader within a church is supposed to be accomplishing. And as you see that demonstrated in your relationship with them, as you see that demonstrated in uh, their public ministry of the word, all those things are to lead to love of your pastor. Okay? They're supposed to lead to a respect and a, a desire to... Um, Be at peace with them ultimately And and so he ends this whole section About how we relate with one another And he says All believers must be regularly admonished to pursue peace And it's interesting just how many times this idea comes up As you read various commentaries on this passage It is very common for the commentaries to begin to assume That there is some sort of uh, tension between the the pastors and the church and maybe there is maybe there is but what I want you us to realize is just how often Paul and the other New Testament authors call for us to live in peace Paul does it numerous numerous times to pursue unity James did it this morning. It is a very common theme. Why? Because it's so easy for you and I to pursue our own agenda, to pursue our own ways. And so he calls us once again to live at peace with one another. That's not really my primary emphasis in going through this. I'm not um, as concerned about this, and I think Paul's intentions aren't as concerned about this either. Because the way he goes forward. He uses the word ask in verse 12. We ask you, brethren, to recognize. As he moves on, though, into this next section where he's talking about ministering to one another, you'll notice he changes the word. This is more of the word urge or exhort. This is where like, he gets really forceful. And as he gives these commands, he states them as commands. He's talking to the church, and he tells the church, We exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. You see how his language becomes much more forceful and much more emphatic? Like, this is your responsibility. You must do this. It's almost like he's trying to communicate, like if you had to choose one or the other, don't do that, okay. But if you had to choose one or the other, you would choose to, you know, follow these ideas like warning the unruly, comforting the faint-hearted, upholding the weak, being patient with all, and doing good to others despite the fact that they do evil to you. His language becomes more forceful. Why? Because I think this is how we practically Work out. This is what it practically looks like. In part, to do the previous commands that he's just given. At the end of chapter four, verse eighteen, he tells us to comfort one another. At the end of chapter five, verse eleven, he tells us to comfort and to edify one another. And so we have to prepare for this. Yes, by by respecting and obeying to the extent that they have authority. Like I don't have the authority to tell you. what you do for entertainment to a certain extent. Like, if you wanna go on a vacation, I can't tell you don't. Um, I was talking to somebody recently and they are telling me that um, some pastors in some part of the world, um, people ask them like, what should I name my child? I don't have that authority. I'm not gonna tell you what to name your child. So, um, so uh, but when it comes to doctrinal matters, to the extent that what I say is in alignment with scripture, there's this responsibility to follow it and obey it, okay? And so, um, his passion is building at this point. As he changes from this ask language to urge or exhort, or the New King James translates it, urge to exhort, it's more passionate, it's more forceful. This is your responsibility. Now, I'm supposed to lead the charge in this, okay? Right? I have the responsibility that, when I see a problem in one of these areas, I'm supposed to take the, you know, reins and lead, you know. I can't just go, Well this is this is your responsibility, this is what Paul tells you guys to do. You go do it and I'll sit in the background and cheer you on. No. I can't do that. But to the extent that you know of situations where there is unruliness, faint heartedness, weakness. It is your responsibility to go and address those in an appropriate manner. And so he works through this. Okay, Not Everybody that we, we work with in their maturity and their Christian life is to be addressed in the same way. Because some people are struggling because of different reasons. And so he tells us how to deal with various people. I don't think this is in a complete exhaustive list like Every person you're ever going to deal with completely falls into necessarily one of these categories. But they are pretty good general ideas. And so he says, admonish the idol. This has been a problem that has been present in the Thessalonian church. People have been lazy. They haven't had a desire to work. And what does Paul say? He says, those of you who are in the body of Christ, as you see somebody who's unwilling to work, who's idle, who's lazy, go and admonish them, encourage them, challenge them to live as they should. But he, he goes on and he says, but somebody who's discouraged, you don't respond to them in the same way. Somebody who's obviously lazy and uncaring, that person, you go in and you, you know, pull out the AK 47, not really, literally, okay, don't, don't go shoot anybody, but like, you really forcefully address that. But somebody who's gone through a trying, difficult time, maybe a loved one has passed away, maybe there's been a horrible diagnosis of some sort. And they're discouraged. How do you come alongside somebody like that? You don't. You don't pull out all the guns and like shoot them. No, you come alongside them and you carefully encourage and comfort them and help them to see the goodness of God in the midst of their faint-heartedness. He goes on and he says, the weak, possibly those who are struggling with sin but don't seem to be able to. Um, break the cycle as you see that what do you do you come alongside them and you seek to help them maybe you point them to passages of scripture that helped you in a similar situation or maybe you come alongside them and you help them by being an accountability partner or something like that well you help them so different people require different responses it's not a one-size-fits-all so, how do you go about practically doing what chapter 5, verse 11 says, comforting, edify? Well, it depends on the situation of the person and how they're responding to the truth that you're presenting them. If they're antagonistic to the truth, you admonish. If they're discouraged, you seek to encourage. If they're weak spiritually, You seek to come alongside them and help them. But he goes on. Right? It would be nice if he just said, you know, admonish admonish the unruly, the idle person, and then once you do it like one or two times, you just go, forget it. You're out the door. Don't let it hit you on the way out. Right? That's not what he says. What does he say? He says, be patient with all. That's rough, right? You know, a a lot of the things that I do, sometimes people are uh, maybe wanting me to work a little faster in this area or, you know, push this issue a little faster or, you know, bring up this situation a little quicker. Why do I do it slower? It's because I have the responsibility to be patient with all, and not everybody is understanding the situation exactly as I do. So I have to work with people and bring them to the point where most of them at least see what I'm seeing, or they can understand why I see what I see. And so we're, we're patient as we work with one another, as we pursue Christ-likeness. It's not something where you just, you know, you get an agenda and you just do it. You slowly work with people and bring them along to help them see what you're accomplishing. And so this is how you and I work with one another. We use the truth of God's Word, the theology that He has entrusted us, the faith that was once for all delivered to you. You take that truth, you allow it to work in your own life, to transform you. And then, as you look at various people who are in the church, some who are hurting, some who are discouraged some are pursuing a path of sin and they are unrepentant and you say how does God's word call me to address these various people And, and the idea is you're responsible to minister to all of them but how you minister to everyone is going to be different based upon how they're responding to the truth of God's word but in the midst of all of this we're patient with everyone. He goes on and as he goes on and he's describing um, how we minister to one another, he ends with this thought in verse 15. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourself and for all. Our tendency is to want to do evil for people who do this evil, right? Right. That's our tendency, the natural, selfish me, when somebody cuts me off in traffic, wants to like uh, blow them up. I remember um, my dad used to have a a Zuzu rodeo that we drove in Ghana, and that thing had a parking brake right on the side right here. And it was great fun because when somebody would do something in traffic that you didn't like, you could just grab that parking brake and you could hit the button like you were in a fighter jet and like you were shooting them. (laughs) I know, it's really brutal. (laughs) All right. But that, that's our natural inclination We want to get back at people right? But, but Paul doesn't allow the church to function that way right? Instead he says Do good to all Even the people who do you evil It's easy for us to do good to people who do us good right? We, we, we almost feel like we have to do good to people who do us good right? We feel like we have to pay them back For the goodness they've done us It's not uncommon if somebody, you know, uh, mows your lawn one Sunday or one week, you're going to what? Mow their lawn the next week. Because we feel like we have to, like, keep up with each other's goodness. But he's saying we're pursuing good for all people. Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. And I think in the context specifically, what kind of good is he talking about? think it's the application of godly truth to their life despite what they may have done to you to hurt you. Despite the words they use intentionally, unintentionally to hurt you, to cut you down. It's your responsibility, it's my responsibility to not only pursue my own good, my own growth and the truth, but also to seek to find ways to minister that truth fellow believers who are hurting and so it's your responsibility, it's my responsibility to minister, I think this is the practical how to of what Paul has told us in chapter 4 verse 18, comforts one another in chapter 5 verses, verse 11 to comfort and then to edify or to build one another up, how do we do that? I think verses 14 and 15 tell us how we examine the life of of the individual, and we minister to them based upon what's observable. How are they responding to God's truth? We're patient with all, and we use the good that we've been entrusted to minister good to them. He moves on from there. And I, I think what he's doing in verses 16 um, through verse 17, 8 through verse 18, 16 through verse 18 is he's describing for us private worship, okay? So he's already kind of addressed, um, you know, the prerequisite. Uh, we have to have this respect, this knowledge of who our, who our leaders are, and we have to be trusting them and embracing what they're teaching. We have to be at peace with everyone so that we can learn the truth ourselves, so that we can be equipped to minister effectively to others. But there's another aspect to how we prepare ourselves individually. And so he addresses that, I think, here. And he tells us, first of all, rejoice always. Verse 16. Rejoice always. I'm going to read verse 17. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. And so, personally speaking, how how do we go about doing this? I think what he's instructing, what he's calling upon you and I to do is... To live in such a way that we are rejoicing in who and what God has provided us, what God has given us. And all our circumstances are drastically different, right? We may have similar circumstances, but you know your life picture and my life picture and the person who's sitting next to you's life picture are really quite different. And so we rejoice in what God has chosen to give us. And this this rejoicing in what God has given me then overflows into my prayer life. And it's going to demonstrate itself in dependence upon the Lord through prayer. And so he calls upon us then in verse 17 to pray without ceasing. And it doesn't mean that, you know... um, you're in the McDonald's drive-thru, and somebody asks you what you would like, and you're like, I'd like two cheeseburgers, and then you, you know, burst into prayer, and they're like, sir, how else can I help you, and you tell them a, a medium, you know, fries and a glass of water, and then you return back to prayer. Well, that's, that's not what he's describing here, okay? So it's prayer without ceasing, but the idea is not, you know, we're always bursting into spontaneous, random prayer. The idea, though, is that you and I, as we rejoice in who God is, are reminded as we meditate upon the joy that he provides us in life of our dependence upon him for walking in a godly way. And as we realize our dependence upon God, what is that going to drive us to? It's going to drive us to prayer. Asking God to help us depend on him and to rely upon his strength and the difficult circumstances that we face and then finally it results in thankfulness and thankfulness then should characterize our prayers as well which flows from the fact that we are meditating on and we're rejoicing in who god is and so as we prepare ourselves privately it's not shocking that he turns from here and he moves now into public worship. He's described for us private worship, he's described for us the importance of respecting the leadership that God has given, embracing that truth and seeking to minister it to one another. But how do we how do we keep that going? It's by our private and our public worship, right? Because my heart's not going to be ready to minister to your needs your heart's not going to be ready to minister to my needs if you are not privately worshiping throughout the week. If worship for you and for me only occurs when we gather corporately on a Sunday or on a Wednesday evening, we're going to be pretty running on empty, right? To be able to minister to the hurts and the trials that the other people here are facing. And so it requires that we we're, we're realizing our own dependence upon God, so that as we have those conversations with the with the idle person, as we have the conversations with those who are discouraged and faint-hearted, as we have the conversations with those who are um, faint-hearted and you see it in the text before I do. I'm going to get there. Uh, weak. All right. As we have those conversations with those people, what's what's really going on? What's really going on in those people's lives is a failure to depend upon Christ, right? That's ultimately what we have to do. Now, some of those people are going to, you know, are going <laughs> to admonish them. You're like, you need to depend upon Christ in this situation. Other people, it's going to be far more gentle. Other people, it's going to be Uh, Just this idea of helping them, building them up, encouraging them. And so public worship moves there next. And as he moves into how we prepare ourselves corporately with one another, um, he tells us that we're supposed to promote God's public work in our corporate lives. Verse 19 through 22 is where you see all these commands just boom, 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 right? Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. You see how forceful he is at the end of the text compared to at the beginning of the text? At the beginning of the text, he's very soft with them. As he works towards the end, he's just like, these are non-negotiables. So what is he talking about? You know, Some of these words are not words that we uh, commonly use. Like if I told you that I had a prophecy for you. Uh, a number of you would probably stand up and walk out. Uh, so what is he talking about? Okay. Um, let's, let's get there. Um, we must um, remain faithful to the revelation that God provides. I think that's ultimately the idea that it boils down to for us today. Okay. It, it could be what he's addressing his literal prophecies that occurred back in their day. Okay. And he's saying, uh, don't despise the prophecies that are occurring within your own church building. Could be he's also referring to the revelation of God's word that we have, so maybe even the prophecies that he's just described and talked about in chapter four at the end and chapter five at the end. But the big idea, whether it's literal prophecies that were happening in the uh, Thessalonian church or whether he's talking about the prophecies that he himself has told them about, that Christ will raise people from the dead and they will be spared from the wrath to come, and that there is a wrath to come. I think the application is God's Spirit is trying to do something, right? And as you think about this, this phrase, do not quench the Spirit, it... it brings to mind one of Paul's phrases where he writes to one of his young disciples and he says, fan into flame the Spirit, right? The gift that you've been given by the Spirit. And so instead of quenching or putting out what God is trying to do through His Holy Spirit, you and I should be seeking to embrace that and encourage and allow that to accomplish God's purposes. He moves on from there and he says, don't quench the spirit. Instead, um, do not despise prophecies. He moves on from there and he says, test all things. I think the idea here is that you and I are to examine what is being told to us. So as, as I preach, as your Sunday school teachers preach, as other guest speakers come in and uh, speak and preach, what are we responsible to do? We're responsible to examine what is being taught, to test it, and to see if what is being taught is in alignment with God's Word. And when we look at something and we say, this is in alignment with God's Word, this measures up to the standard that we know, we embrace it, we hold to it, and we seek to incorporate it into our daily lives. When we look at it and we compare it to what we know, we say, this doesn't measure up. You can't put this into this system. It doesn't work. What do you do then? You don't hold on to it. You get rid of it, right? And so he, he tells us to test, to hold on to what is good, and then he ends with this final command. He says, abstain from every form of evil. I, I think the big idea is that we're to avoid all sin. Why? Because it hinders our relationship with one another and ultimately with God. And if my relationship with God is hindered, or my relationship with you is hindered because of sin that's in my life, it's going to be really hard for me to come alongside you when you are idle, when you are faint-hearted, when you are weak, and minister to you in any way that is deemed fitting or proper by you. Right? Because my my heart's not right. And so he calls upon us to to realize God has given us people who are to teach us, to instruct us, to equip us. Well, you're not just equipped so that you can know things, right? You're equipped so that you can use it, so that you can minister. But you have to work to maintain that ability. Because once you've got to the point where you can come along somebody and admonish somebody who's idle or unruly, that you can uh, comfort or encourage somebody who is faint-hearted, or that you can come alongside and help those who are weak, it's possible for you and I to run ourselves into the ground because our personal lives are not centered around and dependent upon Christ. And so he calls us to both privately and publicly work towards maintaining the ability to minister effectively to one another. Because Paul doesn't simply entrust the responsibility of comforting one another to the pastor. He entrusts it to all of us. And so there's a responsibility for all of us to be meditating upon God's word, to realize your own dependence upon him, to pursue Christ's likeness. Why? Not just for me, but for everybody else. It's like what verse 15 says, right? Verse 15 ends with, but always pursue what is good, both for who? Yourselves and for who? And for all. And most likely what he refers to there is not simply um, all the other believers, but to the unbelievers, pursue what is good for you as a church, but then also pursue what is good for the outsiders. Okay. So, as we as we conclude, as we think through all this, um, our relationship with one another is crucial. is a crucial building block for. Um, For ministering to one another. For living together. And I'm specifically thinking right here as we talk about uh, the relationship with the pastor. That is what uh, Paul emphasizes in verses 12 and 13. There's supposed to be this love that the pastor has for his people and a reciprocal (laughs) love that the people have for the, the pastor. And as this love... Works both ways. The natural result is going to be peace, and that is a foundational building block upon which we are then able to go forward to comfort one another. And that's where he moves next. We must minister to one another, pursuing patience with all. And sometimes it's it's really really hard. How do you minister to some people, right? And, and I tend to err probably on the side of patience because of this passage. I will work with people longer than maybe you would, because I want to be patient with them. Okay? Now there comes a point where I'm not I'm not gonna be patient anymore. Okay. At some point, you know, Matthew 18 fits in, and we're going to work towards removing you if you're unwilling to come into alignment with Scripture. But if at all possible, we try to be patient with people. We try to work with them. And if they're unwilling to, then we have to pursue other pattern, other biblical guidance. But if, as much as possible, we seek to be patient with people. We seek to minister to them patiently. Because you and I have been taught things numerous times and You didn't always start doing and following in obedience right away either, right? Somebody was patient with you, and so you you showed that same kind of patience to others. We must prepare our own hearts. describes that, I think, specifically with using prayer and realizing our dependence upon Christ, and then realizing that the Holy Spirit is working through His revelation, and we are supposed to test that and avoid evil so that our hearts are constantly prepared to effectively minister the truth that God has entrusted each one of us to others so what do we what do we do how do we respond ultimately to this I think you and I are responsible for ensuring that we are prepared to minister right? And what all does it include? What all does it entail for me and you to be prepared to minister to other believers the way that First Thessalonians chapter five verse fourteen and fifteen describe? How do we do that? I think the text has given us a number of things that we need to examine on our own selves. Right? The text has talked about prayer. What is what is your prayer life? look like is your your prayer life primarily focused on um, your wants and your desires with relatively little care for the needs of others and spiritual needs specifically is your life characterized by joy that is leading to thankfulness to God the Father Is your life characterized by holiness? Chapter five talks about the need of uh, realizing that God's judgment and wrath is coming, the need for us to live as people who are awake, not as people who are asleep, but as people who are awake, alert, and ready to act when there's opportunities. So in order for you and I to be prepared, there's not only the need for prayer, there's the need for personal purity. Right. Not only that, but we also have the responsibility, I think, to be constantly learning the truths of God's Word so that we can effectively use those truths to minister to people. Chapter 4, verse 18 says, Comfort one another with these words. And I think chapter 5, verse 11, Comfort each other and edify one another just as you are doing, implies you're doing it with the tr- truths that have been presented in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And so for you and I to be prepared, it requires it requires purity, it requires that we're involved in a dynamic prayer life. And it requires that you and I are learning the truths of God's Word. So that we can effectively use those, not simply to, you know, provide an oral defense of our theological system, though that is good. Not simply so that you know I could pass an ordination council, but so that I can use those truths to effectively minister to the hearts and the needs of people. Um, sorry. Intentionally pursue specific application. So as we as we are reading through all these commands, there's a lot of commands in this text, right? There's a lot of commands in this text. Maybe as we read through some of them or we talked about some of them, one of them jumped out at you and you're like man that does not describe me that is like contrary to my character intentionally seek to apply yourself to grow depending on the Holy Spirit depending on Christ in that area but ultimately ultimately I think what Paul wants them to do is to find ways to minister to the needs of other believers That's ultimately what all this boils down to. I think that's why he spent chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, and now he gets here. What does he want them ultimately to do? The big thing that he wants them to do is not to be filled with theological understanding, rather to find ways to practically minister to the needs of others. You know, it's it's really hard for me to know your needs, for you to know each other's needs, by Sitting in a pew looking at me and not saying anything to anybody that sits by outside you. It just really is. This, this is not a, uh, a setting in which you can easily minister to the needs of other people within the church context. That happens when you get together outside of church, or I mean, you can spend long hours after church talking with people, but you have to find ways. To engage with one another in meaningful relationships so that you know when somebody is faint-hearted. So you know when somebody is idle in a specific area of their life. So that you know when somebody is weak and needs to be helped spiritually speaking. And so you need to be doing something this week that intentionally purposefully pursues developing relationships so that you can more intentionally and more significantly minister God's word to somebody else. That's ultimately what you and I are entrusted with in this text. Chapter 4, verse 13, all the way through chapter 5, verse 22, I think all boils down to this. We must know so that we can encourage. And we must live so that the truth is real in our lives, so that we can effectively minister So how are you going to intentionally take steps this week to find ways to minister to someone? Maybe you go, you know, I don't think I'm there yet. I need to to learn something. Well, go intentionally learn something so that you can minister to somebody, right? But you need to take intentional, purposeful steps this week so that you can find ways to minister to other believers. Father, we do thank you for the fact that you entrust us with the task of ministering to one another. We thank you that you don't simply entrust us with a task that is impossible for us to accomplish as we minister to one another, but that as you entrust us with it, you equip us with us. You equip us with the the strength. You equip us with people who teach us. equip us with instructions on how we practically go about caring for and ministering to one another. We pray that we would have a desire, very, very intentional, with our ministry to one another. We thank you for the fact that you're working in our lives and you're continuing to transform us into your son's image. In your name we pray. Amen.